Talking Property with Mark Polisco. Welcome, Mark. Good to see you again. Yeah, I know. We've been seeing a lot of each other this week because, of course, it's our International Women's Day month and uh, we're celebrating influential women in property. So we kicked off our series of podcasts and interviews this week with Stella Rosenthal, Felicity Fowler and Tina Lynch in this upcoming podcast. And, of course, there was a lot of topics discussed. Let's listen to them. Sounds good. First, I suppose, Stella and Felicity, with interest rates being at an all-time low and capital flowing in from overseas, is funding becoming more competitive? And do you see this as driving the cost of funds down for developers? Felicity. Thanks, Suzanne. Definitely. I think we've seen a compression in returns to investors and being a director of distribution, that's really I sort of wear the investor's hat and um, often putting that uh, product to market. Um, so yeah, we've we've seen a huge amount of foreign capital coming in, and I generally like to bifurcate the market into the institutional and then the private capital market. Um, so uh, on both sides, we've seen a huge amount of capital coming in. We've had groups like GIC, um, who are with Qualitas, um, CPPIB, who are with Challenger and APG who are with MaxCut bring a huge amount, billions of dollars worth of capital into the space. Um, so the larger deals are certainly becoming um, cheaper, that cost of funds. And then from a private capital side, we've really seen a growing awareness of the asset class from high net worths and family offices. Um, the family offices have been in the space for a very long time. Um, they're the, particularly the sophisticated ones, but uh, I've never had so much awareness and cold calling about um, the asset class. High net worth individuals are hearing about it from their friends and it's a low yielding environment. Generally, it's hard to find investment products with a good return. Um, the security there is, is pretty strong um, in a low yielding environment. So, do I think that we are going to see a continuing compression like we have? Probably not as much. Um, I think the the market's probably recalibrated um, to reflect sort of risk, but I think um, the market has been a very fluid market. We've had a lot of different products come to the market um, to provide financial solutions, um, particularly in the resi space. And so I think we'll still see a bit of flux and fluidity to, to provide the right financial solutions. But yeah, we are at the, the lower end of returns now and that cost of funds is getting cheaper for developers. Stella? Yes, I, I agree with Felicity and I think there's been, even over the last six six months or so, a, a shift in the market and we've seen a lot more competition. I mean, if you think about it, we have this sort of a confluence of factors here because you've got, you've got um, the number of apartment launches uh, you know, falling in half from the prior year. So we had 6,300 or so apartments being launched in 2019, which was half of what it was in just in Melbourne and, sim- and half of what it was the year before and similarly in Sydney. So you've got decline, you've got fewer number of transactions and deals to finance You've got um, and you've got more capital coming into the market. Um, and as, as Felicity said, you know, commercial real estate de- debt offers a very attractive sort of risk-adjusted return relative to other asset classes at the moment. So... Um, you know, investors, and I think that's, and Australia's actually just paralleling, is paralleling what's happening on a, in, in you know, globally in this space as well. Uh, so investors are, in, you know, becoming increasingly attracted to, to this as an asset class, is becoming more well known. Um, as, as Felicity said, institutions are coming into the space. 
increasingly from offshore. So, so you have that, and then you've got a fewer number of trans, fewer number of deals. So you have more financiers chasing fewer number of transactions. So there has been a real shift and increase in the in the competitiveness of the pricing particularly over the last six months. If I think back to transactions and, and deals that we've funded, perhaps even, you know, 10, 12 months ago, I, I think the pricing now would be easily 100 basis points less for the same types of transactions. And uh, so I think that that's, that's obviously good news for developers. I think, though, uh, with there's probably estimated around 100 different financiers in the market at the moment you know, on the private capital side. So I think it's important to, um, you know, to borrow from the right ones because we've also had uh, you know people come to us who've had you know bad experiences with other finances where the capital's not been there when it needed to be there so I think that's really important um, so I think from a developer's perspective I mean they've been hit on pre-sales they've been hit on construction costs but at least they're getting a bit of a break on the, their finance costs at the moment the swings and roundabouts so you've heard that and being on the developer side um, Tina what would you like to add uh, it, it's it's true what both Felicity and Stella are saying. It's definitely becoming much more competitive in there out in the capital space. We are seeing, uh, I think between myself and David, our principal, we get phone calls every day or at least every week from new, new lenders that are keen to uh, do transactions with us. That We are seeing pricing come down, which is great. At the end of the day, the fundamentals for us remain uh, what's the most commercial transaction. Price is definitely one part of the pie. But for us, given the, the environment and there has been a real tightening across the off-the-plan sales market, and that's still slow in the scheme of things because the investor market is still very soft and the foreign investor market's really quite dead. Uh, until we see some serious regulatory changes with government taxes that are being applied to foreign investment as well as local. Uh, we don't see that investor market picking up materially anytime soon and that will continue to challenge uh, being able to get projects off the ground with any sort of significant debt cover uh, levels in place. The majors are still wanting something that's in the range of 80 to 100. They'll tell you that they'll soften that a little bit, but it's very, very selective. Um, and so I guess for, for the mainstream developers out there, any sort of medium to high-density projects, you, you won't be able to bank it or transact it with a major. So you are dealing with the institutional and private uh, wealth families for the finance. It then comes down to who you know has money there, so as Stella was saying, that, that the funds are here, that they don't have to go out and raise it after they've approved the funding for you, uh, to have certainty on that. And the flexibility around what that pre-commitment sales cover looks like and also managing hurdles as you deliver because uh, it's still quite an uncertain market out there in terms of closing up balance of sales that you might need. Um, there's other solutions to come up with in terms of managing that debt on completion of funding if you don't have 100% debt cover in place. And there's quite a lot of lenders out there today that are providing residual finance for completed stocks. So, you know, I, I think it's a matter of uh, lenders being able to think out of the box today that wins them the transaction. Pricing is important, but flexibility and commerciality is key. Yeah, no, I think that's right, and that's an important point. And we talk about pricing, but really, 
you know, the things that drive developers are not necessarily just price. It's not always pricing. It's, you know, um, gearing and the ability, how quickly they can get started on their project. And that's where we've also seen a big shift in that, in the level of pre-sales cover being required, debt cover being required for, for developments. And, uh, and there's been a, you know, increasing number of developments being funded with, you know, zero pre-sales or, you know, a non-bank can probably do zero to 30% pre-sales debt cover now. Um, whereas, as Tina said, you know, the banks are at sort of 70, 80 for, for a really good client and a great project. And um, so I think that's the advantage that a non-bank can provide in uh, the alternative lending space because we can get going on a project much quicker. So we recently funded a project, um, probably about 20% debt cover and um, uh, in a you know great suburb great project and within you know and we they started construction and within six months they were sold out so that does so the evidence is there that if you once you start building the um, the buyers are more likely to you know to walk into the display suite and you know and transact and particularly that luxury downsizer product um, where those occupiers they really want to touch it see it feel it coming out of the ground they're it's quite an emotional decision for them they're selling their family home that they've had for a number of years and um, they just want that little bit more certainty than probably a, a younger occupier so um, and they also provide a lot less settlement risk so it's a it's a safer part of the market um, so we, we we're seeing a lot of non-bank lenders transacting at much lower pre-sales requirements in that space. And it's actually that shift too because it used to be the investor coming coming in, buying it and having the pre-sales. But now you're right, with the downsizers, there's a lot more around and they take a lot longer to make that decision, which, well, as you would know, Tina, yeah. from uh, your figures and your developments. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, owner occupiers typically take longer to commit to a transaction, at, simply because they, you know, it, it's it's a much more emotional acquisition than an, an investment. Um, so we we and we are relying predominantly on the owner occupier market, be it the downsizers or the first home buyers or the piece in the middle, uh, to to buy up the bulk of the stock at the moment. So it does take longer to get them across the line. Definitely, once construction starts, it, it is we are seeing a pickup in that uh, being able to be sort of um, the time frame tightened a little bit for owner occupiers. It's now coming up to three years since considerable stamp duty concessions were abolished for investors. What strategies are developers employing to attain sufficient pre-sales to satisfy the bank's criteria and also provide enough comfort to developers themselves to proceed with the project? At the end of the day. The market is the market. The market will do what it wants to do based on what the you know the environment is like. It's not an attractive environment for investors right now because it's expensive, and there's probably uh, other alternatives for foreign investors um, beyond our shores for, for them to purchase a property, which is cheaper, uh, uh, not as heavily taxed. Um, so. We've we've done the trips to Hong Kong. We've done the trips to Asia. It's not it's not bought in any more sales. So we think until there's any real shift with how governments tax foreign investment, uh, that market will continue to be soft because they do have a whole global environment out there in which to uh, to to direct their money. So it's really a focus on owner occupier product then, uh, first home buyers, downsizers. And, and the other piece it, 
which I think a lot are starting to explore as developers these days, is either a build-to-rent model or build-to-rent-sell type model. So, so just eliminating that initial need to have to pre-sell, call it 200 or 300 apartments uh, in a high-density project, being able to sort of make that stack up in the first instance as a, as a build-to-rent-to-sell model. And that then addresses the big issue that we're all facing, affordability and supply, because at the moment we've got a very, very tight rental market with a diminishing supply because of the lack of projects getting off the ground. So uh, government have got a big issue in front of them around affordability and finding accommodation for a whole lot of people that are in the rental market. Again, it's going to take some legislative changes to occur for it to be a, a viable model for the broader market. But I think it's an obvious thing that government needs to get a move on and get their head around in terms of providing, if they're relying on the private sector to provide that supply of accommodation, they've got to do something to make it commercially attractive. The rental products being provided by private investors and predominantly a lot of that was foreign investment. So, so now that that market's gone, where does that supply come from if, the, if it's not being purchased and financed by the private sector? If taxation stays the same, duties stay the same on investment, then something else needs to shift in terms of bringing supply to the market and sooner rather than later. The fastest way we could do that is, you know, a built, built to rent or built to rent to sell where you don't need that pre-commitment level up, up front. You have an operator that's in place to manage the building. Uh, potentially down the track it could be strated if people are buying to buying to rent to sell. Um, it just provides that supply that's currently heavily constrained in, in the current market. So how would you finance then a build-to-rent model? I think it's largely an institutional product. Um, we are seeing a number of private developers look to, to bring that to the market, but the, um, the groups that have come to the market first to try and do that are groups like Mervac, Growcon as well. Um, we've just seen Qualitas announce that they're bringing a billion dollar plus fund to market with the backing of the Clean Energy Finance Council, which has put 125 million to seed that fund. Um, if you look to markets in the UK and the US, that's an institutional product um, that's been very successful over there and we just haven't seen the markets evolve here yet, but I think we're pretty close now. I mean, at the moment, the build-to-rent players seem to be, you know, as Felicity said, they're larger scale, they're looking for large scale um, developments. They're also targeting a particular segment, um, demographic segment, I think, that may not necessarily solve the sort of the undersupply, um, you know, housing shortage. Um, but I think, um, you know, so I think there's still there's still a long way to go before that market matures in Australia. But the reality is, though, when you're building, when you're financing developments with, you know, with zero pre-sales, you effectively, you know, you might, you'll end up with a build-to-rent model anyway. I mean, so from a financier's perspective, you, you, you look at it and say, well, you know, is that product going to be, is someone going to rent that product or buy it and, and be comfortable with that risk? And as Tina said, there's, you know, opportunities, you know, increasingly financiers are providing residual stock loans for people to, um, you know, sell that, sell that stock in a more timely sort of um, consistent manner after completion. 
the the product that's being brought to the market is really delivering somewhere between a um, five, four and six percent return from what we've been seeing, and that's really a yield that the institutions are happy with. Um, yeah, so uh, it's been really difficult to make the numbers stack up in the Australian environment. Um, there haven't been enough government um, incentives there to to make the numbers stack up. It, it's price versus capital uh, like time frame holding a uh, holding cost is al- almost far more expensive than uh, getting the project going for a slightly higher finance cost so at the end of the day uh, yes it it has put pressure on project returns for sure with the additional cost uh, on where the bulk of funding is available right now um, but the alternative is you could be sitting there for two years waiting to get sufficient pre-sales in place to be able to get it financed at a, at a cheaper rate. Your holding costs uh, might mean that that doesn't really stack up either. So when you when you put that into your FISO, your returns are already squeezed. So it's really that price versus capital uh, sort of equation that brings us forward to taking on the additional premium for getting projects going sooner rather than later. Uh, and as has been said before, once you start the project, it does help sell the rest of the project because uh, particularly with owner-occupiers, when they have that certainty of time frame of project being delivered, actually seeing it getting underway, they're, they're much more uh, happy to commit to a contract than if, it, if they're just waiting indefinitely. Build it and they will come. Yeah. So what would you like to see the government do to stimulate the sector? Um, for myself, working a lot in the residential development debt space, I really think that encouraging foreign investment back, um, I think that was very um, aggressive, some of the measures that were put in place to cool the market. Um, and I think that they do provide a, a certain level of investment product, um, whether it's to provide supply for, for rental um, accommodation in the market. Um, but I, I really think that... Um, that would be um, the first place that I would like to see some some government support um, or actually the other place is um, incentives for build to rent because I do think that that is um, going to provide a solution for um, you know lower priced accommodation and those that aren't really um, looking to own a home. I think we certainly need some some accommodation in that space. Because when you said as far as supply goes, it did come up that uh, there is you know, fewer openings of apartments and things like that. Do you see that there will be a lack of supply? Absolutely. There's um, a clear underinvestment in um, owner-occupier and rental housing in Australia. Um, it's 50,000 houses required in Melbourne, um, about 41,000 in Sydney per annum. Um, I think it's around 23 or something. I read an article, um, which is why I'm being a bit specific with these numbers, but that's per annum for Brisbane, 23,000. And, you know, we're significantly off those numbers now and there's a huge amount of, um, yeah, tightness in the market. So So something does have to be done. Something does have to be Mm. done. Otherwise, Mm. prices are going to skyrocket, whether it's rental or capital prices. Stella? Yes, I, I agree with Felicity. I think, um, I think, yeah, looking at the built to rent space as as uh, is a key to you know providing further supply, you know, of rental stock, um, and 
uh, I think, um, yeah, she said, I mean, you know, there was Charter Kate Kramer that came out last week and said we have, a, you know, there'll be a chronic shortage of supply by the end of 2021 across the East Coast. And yeah, the fifty thousand a year in Melbourne, and you know we there were you know sixty three hundred fifty thousand a lot when you fifty thousand a lot bandy these numbers off, but then you think just to meet demographic, on. you know the demo, the demographic growth. So yeah, it's I half mean, it's the MCG on Grand Final Day <laughs> when you look at it. That's short of housing. Yes, per annum. Mm. I agree one hundred percent with Phil. Felicity and Stella. Um, yeah, the first thing for me would be bringing foreign investment back, and that would be uh, reducing the duties applied to them, provide a band in terms of, you know, where they get the most benefit being in that sort of 500 to 800 price point and then they can have a, a sort of step up as the values go up with the duties going up. So I think that then puts the cap on 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 that market being able to inflate um, property prices um, and that's the supply that we need most in terms of that 500 to 800 uh, product um, and then the second piece is definitely around the build to rent providing some incentives to bring industry uh, make it more viable for industry to deliver that product because at the end of the day uh, that is the most obvious solution for providing that rental accommodation, which is the looming shortfall that we see falling off the cliff. Um, and if government want private sector to deliver, then they need to make it attractive. Stella, Felicity and Tina, thank you so much for your time for Talking Property and have a wonderful International Women's Day. <laughs>